Well, um, it is awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I want to start by saying um, just a, a thanks to Tom and Melissa, um, even though they're not in the house, and to all the, the leadership of this house for allowing me to come and to speak with you. Um, can we just give them a hand, your leadership team? They're awesome, amazing people. Tom was a great influence in my life as a youth pastor and then as a, in, as a college pastor as well and has continued to be a voice in my life. And Brad is, is just a great example of what it looks like to follow Jesus for the long haul. Terry, I mean, so many others have influenced my life. The, the spiritual DNA of this house is, is also my spiritual DNA. So it, it feels really good to be here. And I need y'all to do a favor for me. Um, I just saw your announcement about um, Banning Liebscher coming here in a few weeks. So can you please, can you promise me to do this, okay? So we're, we're trying to get him to come to Omaha. We have a lot of like mutual friends, but we haven't officially met yet. So what I need you to do when he's here with you is beg him to respond to my email and come to Omaha, okay? Um, we've had a lot of emails, a lot of texts into him. He said he wants to try to make it work, but he hasn't committed. So can y'all promise me to help, me, help us out there? Okay, a few of you. Okay, come on, help me out there. We'd really appreciate it. Um, there, if there's any flowers we can send you, if it works out, we'll try to do that as well. So, um, well, it was great to be here. I, I don't know, I, I kind of feel after that worship like the, um, the backup quarterback who comes in after the game's been won. And I don't know if that's worship for y'all every single week, but um, that was powerful and, and heaven came down. And so, yeah, that, that's a great, that was a great atmosphere. I kind of feel like now I can completely bomb and it won't matter. Game's been won. So um, it, it's going to be it's going to be good. Hopefully it won't be a complete bomb. There may be an interception here and there, but I'll, I'll do my best. So as Brad mentioned, I live in Omaha, Nebraska. We moved there in 2007, my wife and I. Um, at the time, we had a little six-week-old baby, and we just kind of took the plunge. We were asking the Lord for something new, an opportunity op opened up, and we, we decided to dive into that. And, you know, what they, they call Nebraska, not only is that our, um, our slogan at the visitor's center or whoever it is, the, the tourist um, team of Nebraska came up with that, and it's, it's a great joke uh, among Nebraskans. Um, but not, not only is that our, our kind of theme, but um, we're actually known as, I think we're kind of labeled this by our own selves, um, the good life state, okay? Have, has anyone ever heard that, the good life state? Hey, we're known as the good life state. And, and really, when we moved there in the summer of 2007, we realized there's a lot of good things about this city. There, we, we met one of our pastors is um, from Tallahassee. He's lived there for decades. And one of the first things he said to us when we rolled into town, this is America's best kept secret. You're going to love it. And you're going to want to be here forever. And at the time, we thought, we're going to just be here for a little while. Um, but, but we're going to love it while we're here. And, and as we settled in, we really did love it. Like, there, there's a lot of great things about Nebraska. We, we get ranked as the, one of the top zoos, if not the top zoo in the, the nation every year. And... Um, it never gets too, too hot. Um, the, the traffic's not bad. You kind of have everything you need without a ton of traffic. I mean, there's some real good things. But, but at, about six months after we moved there, we, we experienced something that literally took our breath away. And, and that really stole the whole idea of the good life um, out of our hearts. And, and it was this thing they call winter, right? <laughs> it, it is brutal, okay? It is brutal. And th there's like this, this super highway. That, that is called Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, that, that brings the Arctic air in from the winter and it will destroy you in every way, shape, or form that it can destroy you. There's actually a, a rule in place in our, in our schools that if the wind chill is below negative 20, school is canceled. Okay? Can, you, can you even imagine that 
people live in a place that gets that cold? Like, so if you're looking at moving anywhere north of here, check the school policies. If they have that policy, I'd recommend staying where you are because um, that's not a good sign. And so, so winter just destroyed us. I remember the first snow that we ever got to encounter there. I, I videoed it and I think I like put it on Facebook or something. By the third snow, I can remember the third snow, I was driving to work on a busy road and my tires blew. And so I had to get out of my, one tire did, I had to get out of my car and change a tire with no gloves in a blizzard. All right, it's one of the most painful things I've ever had to do in my life. And I was like, they say the good life. This is not, like, they, they got this wrong, right? Honestly, it's not for everyone. It should be, right, where we go with this. And, and so, so there, there are aspects of this that, that kind of stole this whole good life idea away from me. And, and, and when it was, it's, it's winter in Nebraska still, 12 years down the road, I feel a little bit, just because I grew up here, I, I still kind of feel like a foreigner. I'm kind of still learning how to, like, when are you supposed to shovel the snow? Um, like, where do you put it, especially when you get a ton of it? Like, well, you know, how do you drive in the snow, and, and how do you keep your kids safe, and how do you stay safe when it gets really, really bad? And, you know, it, it, there, there are moments, even though we've lived there for a long, long time, that we still feel a little bit like a foreigner. Have you ever moved anywhere, or been anywhere, or gone anywhere where it, there, there's times where you've just felt like a foreigner? Right? You just feel the tension, you feel the discomfort. Some of the feelings are you feel disoriented, you feel confused, and sometimes you can feel pretty discouraged. I think we've all kind of probably had that feeling at some point in our lives, and I think it's really normal. And here's kind of the point of me sharing all of that, is when I moved to Nebraska, I got my license changed, I got my address changed, I put Nebraska plates on my car. I was automatically a Nebraskan citizen, and yet there were many things about it that felt foreign to me. And there are many things about it that still kind of feel foreign to me. This tension of this doesn't feel 100% like home, what I'm familiar with, what I know. And I think for every single one of us, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you've, if you've made a commitment to become a follower of Jesus and to walk with him and to love him and to worship him and to be conformed into his image, you need to know this, that you are now a foreigner in this land, that your identity shifted immediately, that, that, that your, your, your core of who you are shifted like this. As quickly as I moved to Nebraska, as soon as you said yes to Jesus, your identity shifted. And yet, as a follower of Jesus in this land and in this world, there's, there's going to be tensions. There's going to be times where you feel a little bit like a foreigner. There's going to be times where you feel a little bit out of place. And, and you feel like, is this really home? And you need to know that that's absolutely normal. It's actually how it should be. I'm going to teach this morning out of First Peter Chapter 2, you can turn there. It's also going to be on the big Bible behind me or beside me. Peter's writing to these exiles, these followers of Jesus who are scattered throughout the region. And he's trying to get a message to them about staying faithful in the midst of their hardship. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day 
he visits us. So things about this I, I want to unpack for you and understanding the context. As, as, as I said, Peter is talking to these exiles, literally the, these, these political exiles who are scattered throughout the region, who are outside of their, 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 their home territories. And he's trying to encourage them. And, and they're also followers of Jesus. And he's, he's speaking kind of, there's some double meaning happening here as he's encouraging them. And he begins, I think it's really great, in verse 9 with reminding them of their new identity. Right, that, that when you said yes to Jesus, you got this new identity card, you got this new driver's license, you got new plates on your car, you got a new address, right? And, and so he's reminding them that your new identity is that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, right? He, he's reminding them of this new identity because they're living in these lands where they may be tempted to let go of that identity. And so he's infusing them and encouraging them, don't forget who you are. And then he, he really kind of talks about the process of immigration. He's talking about the move, the change that has happened in all of their lives. And he says that you, um, he says he's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You went from dark to light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You've, you've gone from being isolated to having community. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, re, you have received mercy. And so he's, he's just reminding them that you've gone through this process. You've got this new identity that, that, that has taken you through this process of immigration in a sense. And now here is where you find yourself. Dear friends, in verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as foreigners and exiles. And, and he, he's reminding them that their new identity is what it is. And that reality of, of what they've experienced, that they've gone from dark to light, that they've gone from unforgiven to forgiven, that they've gone from isolated, not only from others, but also from God to, to being in community with our loving heavenly father. He, he's, he's reminding them of this whole process, but then he's still also affirming, and yet you are foreigners and yet you are exiles. And in this statement, he, he's not meaning political foreigners, political exiles. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of God here. As, as citizens of the kingdom of God who still live on this planet, you're foreigners and you're exiles. And this same truth still exists for us today. We are foreigners and we are exiles in this land. Now here's the problem. I believe that the church exists as a community of foreigners and exiles who gather together and worship and who go out and serve. We gather and we scatter. We gather and we scatter. And we're intended to be that way. These foreigners and these exiles who worship the loving God and then go out and share that God with the world. But as we go out into the world, we often experience, like I did when I first moved to Nebraska in the harsh winters, you experience these tensions, right? You experience these tensions of like, man, this isn't, this isn't easy. Like, like this is difficult. It's not comfortable for me. It's not what I know. It's not what comes natural to me. And so the temptation for many of us who love and follow Jesus and we scatter into the world what, because of our jobs or because of our relationships or our communities or our school or whatever it may be, we enter into these places and, and the, the tension begins to set in. And, and oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where that tension becomes really uncomfortable, right? A few examples that may help you here. So you, you want to make relationships at work, yeah? You're trying to get to know people. So you hang out around the coffee pot or you go to the break room and, and you have these conversations and then all of a sudden everything turns sketchy. You're like, what do I do now, right? Like they're talking about the party they went to this weekend or the person they're sleeping with or how much they hate the boss, right? And you're like, okay, what do I do? Like, do I like say something? Do I laugh like it doesn't matter? 
And, and a lot of times what we'll do is we just take our tuna sandwich back to our desk, right? And we just assume it's a little easier over here. It's a little bit more comfortable over here. As a pastor, I, you know, it, this happens to me all the time just in normal life. I, I moved um, several years back, my wife and I, into a part of our city that's kind of, it's a very unreached, unchurched part of our city. It's kind of where all the activists live. If, if this gets you any idea of our neighborhood, um, in June during Gay Pride Month, um, my son came to me during our first year living there. And he says, Dad, how come we're the only street on the block that doesn't have a pretty rainbow flag? Right, and, uh, and, and this is just kind of where we live and we love it and we, and we wanted to be there. We planted a campus right in the heart of this and, and it's been a beautiful place to be, but, but there's tensions there, right? And so when I've gotten to know my neighbors, especially at the beginning, I was always waiting for the, the question of doom is what it was. I get to know them and we're talking and we're getting along. We're talking about flowers. We're talking about the city we're, and then the question of doom. So what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm sorry about what I said earlier, right? Or, Oh, you know, I, actually, I got to run inside real quick. I, I, you know, I forgot the turkeys in the oven or, or whatever it is. And th- this is always the, the, the situation for us pastors. And so we, we want to get to know the world around us. We want to engage in relationship. And yet those tensions always exist. Or maybe you want to be a light in the school system. And so you send your kids into the, the public school system. But you know that there's policies there. That, that, that may compromise their integrity or their purity and you struggle with that tension. Maybe it's that you want to be um, a, a good, a good you know, uh, citizen of, of this city, of, of, of our state, of our nation. You want to engage government, but you know that voting is always a mixed bag, right? We're not going to get political here, but let's just be honest. It's always a mixed bag. There's never a lack of tension and who we vote for, and the side of the aisle that we choose to stand on. You want to be a good steward of your money, and so you buy cheap clothes, but isn't it the manufacturers of those cheap clothes that have sweatshops all over the world, right? Hopefully I'm making you feel a little bit like I can't do anything right, right? Like, because this is the tension that we live in, right? We want to connect on social media, but we know that that is a gateway to all kinds of things, that can be harmful to our soul, harmful to our relationships, harmful to our psyche. Do you know they, they've discovered that for adolescents who spend more than two hours a day on social media, which really isn't a lot when you just add up all the times they check it. They, they say the average iPhone user checks their phone thousands of times a day and you add all of that up. Two hours a day for an adolescent on social media, 60% more likely to struggle with anxiety and depression than their peers. That's not even like a, we think there's a correlation. It is, it is a correlation. Like, like it's completely connected. Two hours a day, anxiety, depression is coming down the road in many cases, right? And yet we want to connect with people. We want to just be normal. We want to engage the world around us. And, and how about this recent example? We just want to like enjoy football. Let's watch the Super Bowl. That's fun. Pole dancing, right? Like, like how, how do you do this? Like, what, what do we do? How, how, do we, how do we make sense of all this? How do we live in the midst of this tension? So a lot of times, here's what we do. And, and all of us have done this in one, shape, one way, shape, or form. Uh, maybe you just don't recognize it, but we do one of two things often to, to resolve the tension without really thinking about it. We, we either separate or we integrate. We either separate or we integrate. We separate, we just take our tuna sandwich back to our desk and we say, man, I don't want to get into those conversations. It just feels awkward. Or we integrate and we say, you know what, let's just, I'm just being normal, right? It's, it's just a little bit easier just to, to kind of be like everybody else. And it's not that we intend to do that. It's not that that is our goal and it doesn't happen overnight. But as we go through life, and, and I would say this, if as I'm talking about these tensions, if you don't connect with any of them, 
there's probably a pretty good chance that you've either by default separated or integrated. But I believe we're actually called to live in the midst of this tension. I think we're actually called to, to be in the, the midst of this tension. So what, what did Peter have to say? That maybe wasn't so much about just separate and isolate and kind of just be to yourself, but it also wasn't fully integrate and, and just become what you're around. What did he have to say? Well, he gives us a little advice here. He says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they may not like you all that much, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter was a believer in the good life. Maybe Peter was a Nebraskan at heart, right? He was a a believer in the good life. He's actually quoting Matthew chapter 5 here, verse 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter's response to how to live faithfully as a foreigner in the land is to live a good life, to live a good life. What does that exactly mean? I want to talk about that and maybe give you some handholds to think about as you consider this. I think part of the the thing where we maybe get it wrong when we're faced with these tensions is we're kind of forced to to either choose um, the good side or the bad side, kind of the right side or the wrong side. Um, and, and, and it puts us in this, this kind of black versus white, black and white kind of, I've got to either do it this way or this way. There's this divide, and I've got to decide what side, what side of this issue I'm going to stand on, right? And, and so we kind of feel like that's what we're forced to do because, to be honest, that's what our culture is doing. They're, they're, they're wanting to know, well, what, what's your political party? Where do you stand on this issue? Where do you stand on that issue? And where do you, how do you spend your money in this area? And now I've characterized who you are as a person. Right? And, and this is kind of where we're at. And as our culture is doing this, we're finding that we're dividing more and more and more and more, not just politically, but socioeconomically and racially and in many, many other ways. Because it's creating a divide that I don't think we necessarily need or should have created. And so here's kind of, kind of my advice from looking at Peter. I, I think when faced with the tension of right or wrong, because all of these tensions really bring us to this question of right or wrong. A, a better question would be, what's right, rather than what's right, what's wrong, maybe ask this question, how can I do good here? How can I do good here? And so when we're faced with these tensions, rather than seeing it from the perspective of morality, and I need to make a stance, and I need to wave a flag, and I need to make a statement, and I need to be clear, maybe the better question to ask is, How can I actually just be good in the midst of this? How can I actually do good in the midst of this? How how can I be an expression of the good life in the midst of this? What what kind of the the, the conversation that our culture has kind of placed us into and we feel forced to answer is what side of the aisle do you stand on, on this particular issue, on this particular situation? And and, and what's your answer to this particular deal and what that does is it just creates this growing and growing as I mentioned divide because we don't want to associate with what we can't agree with isn't it interesting that you've got people who won't go you know you've got teams who win a championship and and for years and years the, the normal thing to do after you win a championship is you go to the White House now no one will go to the White House because of what it might associate them with 
right? It's this, this forcing you to make a decision that in many ways is not even related, but you have to take a stand. You have to make a statement. And, and I think in, in many ways for us as Christians, we often feel that same pressure. I need to make a stand. I need, I need to, 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 to wave the flag and make sure people understood. But I think what Peter is giving us here, and I think what Jesus gives us when he says the exact same thing, is he's given us a third option. And it's not just right or wrong, but it's the third option of good. Just do good. Actually, just insert good into this equation and see how God can use it. So last Sunday night with the Super Bowl, right? I don't know if it was a big deal here. It was a big deal in Omaha, Nebraska, and everyone was talking about it. My kids go to a Christian school, and the next morning I'd say what everyone was talking about was the halftime show. And, you know, I was watching that, the, 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 the Super Bowl with my family, and I've got a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 7-year-old, and, you know, we're all just enjoying the halftime show, and then all of a sudden things get a little risque, and, you know, I, I'm wrestling with well, what do you do in this moment? Do you separate? Do you integrate? You know, do you tell the kids, leave the room, go look at that, and then go wash your eyes out, right? Like, <laughs> or do you, do you integrate? You just say, you know what, they're just, it's just expression, expressing themselves. As I watch my 12-year-old daughter say, God, they're so good. That is so, they are so pretty. Wow, they're so famous. Look how everyone's just kind of celebrating them. As I watch my 10-year-old son with his jaw on the ground and his eyes wide, and thankfully he finally says, oh, they're being so inappropriate. And he walks away and, and he excuses himself from the room, right? And it was this, 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 this kind of struggle there as a parent. Do I, do I separate? Do I integrate? But the better question, how can I just do good? And so the next day I had a conversation with my daughter about what did you see and what does that say to you about how you could live your life? And where do you think your identity comes from? Where do you think real success comes from? I talked to my sons and I said, well, what do you think that says about women? And how do you think you should treat women? And how do you think you should look at women? Right? It was an opportunity not to, to have to wave a flag and write something on social media or to like take my TV and throw it out of the house, right? It was, this, it was just this opportunity actually just, I'm just gonna do good here. Because this is what it is. And here's the hard news for all of us. It's only going to get more uncomfortable. It just is. It doesn't matter who wins the election. It doesn't matter what policies get passed. It doesn't matter what, 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 what trends kind of take off. Just know that things are only going to get more and more uncomfortable. And if we're caught up in constantly having to take a side and choose right or wrong, right or wrong, we're just going to be running around and trying to figure out. And eventually we're just going to get tired and we're either going to separate or we're going to integrate. But if we take that third option and say, but how can I just do good here? How can I actually just be good here? Peter goes on after he mentions living the good life in a way that's pleasing to others. He uses these types of characteristics, submit to others, live in freedom, honor others, be sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble, bless, endure suffering, be unified. There's all these descriptors of what the good life is and really what it is. This, this word good, just to be aware, it's, it's this Greek word kala. Okay, kala, and, and it's interpreted in many different ways throughout the New Testament. It's all through the New Testament. And, and most of the time, it's, 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 it's uh, interpreted good, but there are times where it's interpreted beautiful. Like when the sinful woman anointed Jesus and everyone jumped on top of her, and he says, stop, stop. She just did a kala thing. She just did a beautiful thing. 
right? There's times where it's translated honorable. And there are times when it's translated right, but it's not a right like you got it right on the math test. It's a right like you just did the right thing. It has to do with, with the quality of our action is really what this word kala really is. It's, it's the quality of our action. And, and, and really what Peter's saying, what Jesus is saying, and you actually see this word all through the New Testament. Live good lives, bear good fruit, fight the good fight, be good soldiers. You see it over and over and over again. And, and every time what it's talking about is the quality in which you live. Be beautiful. At times it's interpreted wise, honorable, excellent. This is really what this word actually means. It's the quality of life that we offer to the world. And as we come, become a people who can choose this third option, I believe that we will eventually find that this tension might not, exist, might, might not go away, but the presence of Jesus will come among us and in the lives of the people around us. I want to end with the story of couple immigrants who are really close to me. My, my wife is half Persian, okay? So her, her dad's side of the family is from Iran, and they've all immigrated to America over, uh, in, within the 1970s. They all made their way over here. So they've been over here for a long time. My wife's dad is an amazing man. He, he's a loving father. Um, he, he has cared beautifully for his kids. But his decision in moving to America was to separate and to integrate. He lives in Dublin, Georgia, right? And um, he eats grits, and he loves the old country buffet, and he's a good old boy with a really thick Persian accent, <laughs> right? They're, they're actually, they're, they're, my wife's born last name, and their, their original last name was Kabbalizadeh. Kabbalizadeh, it's the people who came from Kabul. Is, is what it is, and, and they, um, they, because that's such a, a foreign name, um, around the time when people in America really began to um, be skeptical of Middle Easterners, they changed their name to Kabuli. He said, it sounds Italian, is what he said, right? <laughs> the day of 9-11, he called, he called my wife, she was um, in college at the time, and he said, you're Italian. <laughs> Remember, you're Italian, right? He, he still kind of lives his Persian culture at home, but, but out publicly, no one knows like anything about his Persian culture, right? He's separated. He's pulled his culture into himself, and, and, and he's also just kind of integrated. He's just, he's actually no longer Farhad. He's Fred, right? He's Fred. His sister is named Mavash. She lives in San Diego. We had the opportunity to spend time with Mavash recently, and she's a big personality, vibrant, beautiful, loving woman. And she, when we went to San Diego to visit her, she didn't ask like, where do y'all want to go eat? Like, what are some cool San Diego spots that you want to check out? She said, I got to take you to my Persian restaurant, best, best Persian restaurant in town. I'm going to take you to the Persian grocer afterwards. It's the best grocer in the area. And I'm going to cook you some Persian food. She was not interested in, you know, giving me lucky charms, which I love. She wanted to fix me rice and chicken for breakfast, right? Like, like she had no interest in trying to accommodate my Americanism. And, and so she took us to this Persian restaurant. And, and, and as we're sitting there and there's a belly dancer up front who's like swallowing flames of 
uh, like swords on fire. By the way, just in case you ever go to a Persian restaurant, if there's a belly dancer, from a distance, it's fine. But when they come right up to your table, things get really awkward because you just don't know what to look at, right? Like you're, you're like, look her in the eye or not or water or like, what do you do? Like, I don't know what to do right now. And I, I will say she asked me to dance. I said, absolutely not. She will dance with you. But uh, it, it is just very, very, uh, one of the more uncomfortable moments of my life, right? So we're hanging out there at this, at this Persian restaurant and, and this woman came up to my aunt who is not Persian at all, just a typical American woman. And she's, she said, hey, Mavash, it's so good to see you. I love you. I'm so glad you introduced me to this restaurant and these dancings and these foods and all this kind of stuff. And she was just living the, her best Persian life. This just typical American woman. We're like, how do you know her? Well, I sell, I sell her makeup in the department store. I, I teach her Zumba class on Wednesdays and we've just become friends over the years. And I told her about this place and now she brings her girls here for girls' nights out and they have a blast. And, and I thought to myself, though Mavash isn't a follower of Jesus, the Lord really spoke to me in the midst of this. How do you handle your new culture as a follower of Jesus? As a citizen of the kingdom of God, are, are you a little bit more like Fred? Do you kind of separate and isolate? Do you know that no one in Dublin, Georgia knows anything about Iran? So he's the only one there to tell everybody and he's not saying anything. He's Italian, right? <laughs> Is that how I'm living my Christian life if I'm really honest though? Does anyone even really know? If I didn't have the title pastor would anyone really know just if they got to know me and spend time with me and see the way I interact publicly and with neighbors and friends? I want to be a little bit more like Mavash. I want to be one of those people who, who's just convinced that my culture is actually really good. If you can just taste it. If you could just experience it. If you could just, just feel the good life. If you could have a, a part of the good life you'd come back on your own like this woman did to the Persian restaurant and Mavash didn't have to bring her. This is what it means to be foreigners, to be exiles in the time that we have on this, in this life and in this planet is to bring our culture into the world around us, to infuse our culture into the world around us. And you know, one of the great characteristics of our culture as followers of Jesus, it's just good. I actually think it's the best thing out there. That word good in some parts of the New Testament is translated better. Our quality of life is better. What we have to offer is better. And we don't have to shove it down people's throats. We don't have to convince it of it, them of it. But we do have to live it in a way that people can actually see it. And what if we become a people who become such lovers of our good God, who share the good news, and live our good lives. I think rather than just a flickering match who exists in the corners of culture or a raging fire who feels like they need to burn everything down, we become a warm glow that attracts the world around us. In just a minute, we're gonna share a meal together, which is a, a, a great statement. It's a great reminder that we are foreigners in a different land and we share a different meal that means something different to us but I want to pray for you and then Terry's going to come up and lead us in communion God we love you so much and we thank you
for your great love for us. And we just declare together, God, you are good. You are good. And I pray, God, for Riverstone. I pray for the individuals who are here. And I pray for every church that exalts the name of Jesus in this land. That you would show us how to live the good life. In a way that the world could taste and see that you are good. And follow us into the beauty of the kingdom. We love you and we ask this in your name. Amen.